Welcome. I'm Todd Nostel with Growing for Good, a podcast where we're all about plants. Join us weekly for interviews with various professionals discussing their work with plants and how it relates to the rest of us. If you eat, breathe, or just love the things that grow, you may find this podcast informative and resourceful. Thanks for being here. Let's begin. Today, in episode one, we'll discuss no-till and regenerative farming with Patty Armbruster. Featured topics include compost, soil health, and big ag amongst other things. Be sure to check out the links in the bio for things we discuss, and check out the link to her Facebook page, Agrarian Food Web, and give her a like and follow. Let's begin the episode. And we're here today with uh, Patty Armbruster. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Patty. Yeah, I am from Michigan originally and was born in agriculture and just loved every minute of my upbringing and the experiences that I had on the farm in Michigan. Even though it was a beef cattle operation in Montana, we'd call it a ranch, but in Michigan they call them farms. But i just been crazy about agriculture since I could walk in. My mother was quite determined to get her kids, all three of us, to not go into agriculture. And I was determined to all get out that that was my path. And so I have been in agriculture my whole life and super excited about still being able to be in agriculture, even though my paths have changed over time. But um, yeah, I currently am teaching high school, or 7 through 12, middle school through high school, agriculture education. In a tiny school, so little classes and can really relate to the students and get to know them and stuff. And I started an outdoor classroom at that school, and we have a passive solar greenhouse that the students and I built. And we built a state-of-the-art root cellar so that we could be teaching kids how to grow food, store that food, and get that food right into their own school system to hopefully change their future eating ideas and their... Um, their knowledge base for the future for sure as to how important the soil is and how it's connected to food and how it's connected to their health. Yeah. And so um, that's what I'm currently doing. And then I started this small uh, consulting business to help other people um, move toward regenerative agriculture and doing uh, no-till organic type growing. Yeah. And you weren't, you weren't always in, uh, in education, this consulting is kind of new to you, and you've kind of right. fallen into it. What What are the paths that led you to uh, becoming someone really involved with uh, no-till agriculture? Well, I was raised um, in chemical ag, and the majority of Michigan is chemical ag. I guess that we do have a big following of Michigan that are moving toward organic, but most of the bigger farmers, you know, where you have bigger farm fields and stuff, are chemical ag. And my family land, and land that I still own now in Michigan, is run by my nephew, and he's still chemical ag, but hopefully through education and more more workshops and and um, get-togethers with people that are moving in the right direction that he'll start. And he is starting, but moving to, away from chemical ag and more into a regenerative ag model. Yeah, and that's actually how I met you. You had a workshop here on our farm. Mm-hmm. Um, Super good job on it, by the way. Oh, cool! You know, I learned so much, and I'm excited to incorporate some of the uh, some of the no-till methods. And it, it, so, you'd say it, it's become your advocacy, then? 
Yes, yes, I'm extremely passionate about teaching and teaching agriculture and, and teaching as people that are ready to move toward doing something that's positive for their future and, and to help their soils and to let their soils help themselves become healthier and, and everyone that has anything to do with their production become healthier because of it. And so I love the teaching aspect of it. And so I'm really driven by that. And that's why I did start the consulting is to really hopefully help people, you know, not only just through work workshops or whatever, but hopefully one-on-one -on -one with farmers on their own land and stuff to help them become successful. Yeah. Again, <laughs> that's where the regenerative comes in. Right. Uh, regenerative ag. And that's, uh, uh, tell us, uh, tell us how regenerative ag can encourage your, your soil's health. Because that's what, what all this is about, is just really healthy soil. Right, correct. And regenerative agriculture is all about healthy soil. Is a, regenerative is um, beyond organic. It's beyond, way beyond sustainable. Right now, people talk about sustainability, but right now there is absolutely nothing to sustain. Our soils are de desert, going toward desertification. They're not in good shape and we've got lots of nutrient cycling problems, water cycling problems, all kinds of things that need to be corrected with soil health. And so the words, somebody using the word sustainable, I think has to really look at what they're talking about, that we need to really think regenerative. And if we can't have the vision to look 200 years down the road and still have good soil health and it taking care of every being, animal and human on the planet, then we're not regenerating. So we're, we're going to have to have that regenerating. Yeah. And you, you talk about um, the difference between dirt and soil. Yes. This, this is something I want to make very clear to people who aren't familiar with the topic of just soil uh, dynamics and biodynamics. Um, so you said it's a four-letter word. It's a bad word. Don't yes. say dirt. It's the, exactly. Yeah. Um, yep. Explain what that uh, means to you and, and how that expressing that to people who don't know what you're talking about, that challenges arise. Right. Well, soil is alive, and it's something that we are completely connected to, even if we don't recognize the connection. We're connected to it through the food that we eat. And that soil needs to be cherished, and it's a resource that has been neglected um, for years or cent centuries now, ever since we tilled the soil in the very beginning that we've neglected it and been abusive to it. And so soil is life and something that we can grow food in and nutritional food, food that's going to really nourish us and make us healthy people again, versus dirt is uh, something that we wash off our car and it washes away or it's been eroding through wind or water and it's lost its life in the soil. So it's became dirt. And so when a, when a farmer or grower says to me, I've got good dirt, I look at them like, you need to come to some education and understand the difference between dirt and soil. I'm taking that as they probably have pretty good soil, but they don't know the difference between dirt and soil and don't know when to not use the word dirt. So in my classrooms, the kids know, don't use the word dirt, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> so 
it is a dirty word and we do need to definitely make a, a true connection and difference between those two. Start respecting soil and treating it like our life depends upon it and um, start figuring out how to turn dirt back into soil. Yeah, and I don't want to step on your workshops here, but do you, do you mind going a little deeper into the scientific side of, of soil and how to build it? Um, well, we talk about the just the basics, so because most people I've found haven't been through agricultural education courses, right? There is a lot of them in the United States. The FFA has, I don't know, over 600,000, maybe close to 700,000 students in it. And it's agricultural education that is offered here in the United States, but it's not in every school. And even in the bigger schools, not everybody is taking the classes. So they're not, most people, the majority, I would say over 90% of the people, are not getting your basic soil education to know the difference mm. between sand, silt, and clay, the sizes, differences, and know that uh, the clay is going to be a negative charge and it's going to hold on to ions and and keep the nutrients in the soil. And they don't know that um, clay is, is gonna be flat and, and stack and flatten out and just make it into pottery, right? So like a lot of our soils are just as hard as pottery and just like concrete because they've been compacted. But most people don't know those basic things and they don't understand structure in the soil and structure is made by the soil microbes, gluing, um, aggregates together, which is getting organic matter in there, turning mm -hmm. some of it to humus, and it's making it like little sponges inside the soil to hold water and nutrients for the soil food web. But that's also making this structure in the soil that just makes it look like black cottage cheese. Yeah. And the roots on the plant will look like Rastafarian hairdo instead of seeing roots if you was to pull one up or dig one up. And that's all the soil food web um, working in the soil and connecting with that plant. And so most people don't know any of those things, yeah. you know. So that's why it pays to, to start with some of those basics because a lot of people are kind of missing that in education today. Yeah. So in terms of moving from soil structure with things like sand and clay and silt, um, developing things like loam involves uh, organic material. And, and that's the thing that... I didn't really get involved with until I started composting myself. No, not myself physically. <laughs> right. But, um, but no, I'm doing some compost work. And um, and that's a huge part of this no-till is that you're directly putting that organic material back into the soil. Right. Um, so for people who are composting and think they're doing a really good job, what are some tips that you would give someone who's not composting correctly? All There's so many ways you can compost, you know, and I, I, I do several of them myself. Like I, I will do, I love Mother Nature. She does her best composting in the winter. And so I will set out stuff like leaves and wood chips and maybe layer them, put some green um, garden waste or food waste in them and just leave them in a pile in the back corner of my yard, you know, somewhere it's hidden and unnoticeable. And uh, let Mother Nature compost under the snow. And that makes some really great compost. That's the easiest, simplest thing to do. But um, other ways is um, to do something like Elaining Ham's hot thermocomposting method, where you're actually um, taking all of these different organic materials, figuring out the carbon nitrogen ratio in those materials, and then making it into a recipe to be able to come out with highly successful, very, very diverse composts. 
so diverse life that went into the compost originally and then it's going to break down and then that creates extremely diverse soil microbes in that compost that can then be amended to your soil that's maybe lacking those in population and you just boost them up really quick with this super good compost. Most people, not all, but most people are not making a really good compost. They're um, just throwing some leaves together and adding food waste, but not understanding the concept that the microbes need water and you need to be able to get these the carbons and the nitrogens blended right together to be able to, to let compost become compost relatively quickly as it has goes through a heat cycle. So it's gonna get up to 160 degrees. When it does, then you need to be turning it, kind of knead it like bread. So you take the outside and put it on the inside. And so that each turn, you're making sure the outside gets the inside so it can get to the 160 degrees. So you're getting rid of any um, bad microbes and diseases and stuff that way by making sure it all gets that hot temperature. So that would be a premium way of doing it. There's lots of other ways to do it. Uh, a lot of bigger farmers now are doing it in windrows, just like your your cities are doing it in big windrows. They can do it relatively quickly because they got big turning machines to be able to do so. But your compost is only as diverse as what you put in it. Hmm. So if you only put three things in it, say it's cow manure and old straw and old hay, then it's not very diverse. That'd be three crops more or less going in it. Yeah. So you could almost create a monocrop compost out of manure. It's just interesting concept. But you're just not getting, you know, I, at a minimum, I put 40 different plants into my compost. It's a lot more than three. To get the diversity, you know, and, it, and that causes your soil to get that diversity of soil food web in your, into your soil, and they are all working for you. And so huge differences in compost. But there's also Dr. David Johnson in, in New Mexico State University is developed what he calls the Johnson Sioux composter. Hmm. And it, it's a it's a stagnant um, frame. He's made a frame out of wire and a pallet and puts um, weed block material around of it. And then he has um, tubes running through the middle of it. So then he puts it all together, gets everything super wet and gets it all ready to go, puts it inside there. And that those tubes allow air to flow through it. Hmm. And so he doesn't have to turn it. But wow. he's turning it into phenomenal, phenomenal compost. And he's got this scientific data backing it up as to how well it's done on his crops and all kinds of things. It's just a huge, great resource. So if a person was just going to do one compost thing a year, I would definitely do the the Sioux, the Johnson Sioux that, um, composter. The Johnson sounds like it, it reminds me of when I see those uh, worm worm cast mm -hmm. trays. Is it similar to that kind of concept? And do you think there's a lot more uh, worms in his kind of composter than? Well, no, he still goes through the heat process. Okay. But the the tubes have perforated holes in them, so it's letting air go through the compost, and that's the the, the meaning of the tubes, so that you don't have to turn it. Okay. Because you're having to turn it because it's getting too hot and they're running out of oxygen, and so you're reoxygenating it when you turn the pile. And so his is set up so it's oxidating itself and it won't have to be turned. But he's not also, he's not trying to get it finished as quick as like the, the thermal compost that I explained okay. earlier. He's getting it done in maybe four or five months and then he's going to let it set 
so that he, it's about six months of age before he's going to actually use it. Oh, wow. But so is the other. The thermal composting one has to go through this. You you heat it up, you know, and it, it makes compost relatively quick, maybe 30 days. But then, then it needs a cure and set and wait for another four or five months before you actually start using it on your, your soil. That's good to know. I didn't yeah. even know that trick for myself. <laughs> um, since we're on the topic of compost, would you like to remark on covering your compost versus not? Um, for me, it's a convenience thing. It's just easy to get rainwater and water directly onto it. I don't usually cover it very often. But there are things I've read out there about you should cover it. You should get that heat, just drive it straight through the top layer, direct sun cover. Well, yeah. in I'm in a different environment than you are because we're, we're only get 12, 14 inches of rainfall, so we're dry and we're windy. So we have more trouble keeping it wet enough in our environment. But if you do the thermal composting right and you have the moisture right as this, you're going through this about 30-day time period of actually paying attention to the heat and turning it as needed, then if you're going to get a lot of rain, I definitely have it covered. And you definitely want it in the shade and mm. not out in the sun. Okay. It's not going to make near as good a compost out in the sun as it will in the shade. And so you can use man-made cover to make it shaded. But um, have, I have mine under a tree, which was the best way to do it. But then if I'm going to get a heavy rain or snow, then it needs to be covered. Interesting. Also, I had it backwards there. <laughs> um, but people can get them too dry, and they won't heat either. Right. They, they have to have, it has to have the water and right. the oxygen to create the chemical reaction that gets the microbes working and going in there and reproducing and stuff. And so that's the whole point of compost. You want those microbes. Yes. Um, <laughs> people tend to not like the idea of bacteria. It's always, you know, uh, hand sanitizer, yeah. this 99.9% bacteria effective. So we want, we want those in our soil. Yes. And there are how many different types of bacteria that are super beneficial. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second, but we do have this phobia of bacteria that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in the hand sanitizers, and, and you would be far better off to take your children, even as tiny children, and let them be in the soil and get inoculated with good, beneficial microbes, including bacteria. Then to be trying to keep them in a sterile environment, you're just setting themselves up for failure because those microbes are helping um, build their immune system and it actually inoculates their body with the microbes. I'm not talking about young children, really babies, you know, because they come into the world sterile and they're going to have to get exposed to be able to gain those microbes and get that immunities built up. So I think that's crucial. But as far as the numbers of positive um, microbes, they have no idea. <laughs> the numbers are so far off the charts that um, we don't, when it comes right down to it, we usually end up measuring them in a, in a bacteria to fungi ratio instead of in mass numbers because we're talking billions and trillions most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where we get into <clears throat> our biodynamics. Mm -hmm. um, the relationship between your your fungus and, and your uh, microbes. And for people who might not know how that comes about, what helped me with your presentation the other day was understanding the nitrogen to carbon and the relationship between how those are balanced. 
Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about that connection? Yeah, the carbon and nitrogen ratio is super important. Everybody has one, right? And so in our compost piles, we're shooting for a 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio. So we have 30 parts carbon to every one part nitrogen. And, and you're just so in layman's term, carbon being plant material, uh, straw, things like that. Yeah, straw, paper, um, corn stalks are high carbon, um, wood chips, super high carbon. So everything has a carbon to nitrogen ratio. You just kind of need to learn it. And there's lots of information on the web to figure out what it is. Like coffee grounds are really close to being perfect. They're 20 to 1. And wow. so we're kind of shooting for a, um, maybe a finished product that's going to go right on your soil at 24 to 1. So if it's a cover crop, we're shooting for about that 20 to 24. But if you stick between 20 and 30, make it layman's terms and a little bit easier to calculate and stuff, then you're going to be in a great shape. Yeah. But, and, and the <clears throat> higher the... Um, nitrogen the higher your bacteria correct because they're yes. cooking it off they're eating it yeah they're yeah. loving it yeah exactly so we're working towards that that balance of uh was it 0.75 to yep to one to one yeah so to one to one think of one to one um bacteria to fungi but bacteria are microscopic where you know you can't even see them hardly you can see them at 40x which is 40 40,000 you can see them but the, you look at a, at a fungal hyphae, it's really wide. Like it may take five to seven bacteria to figure out the width of the fungi. Substantial. And then, yeah, and then you measure the fungi in lengths. And so when we say it's one to one, it's, it's one in mass. Hmm. So you still have a lot of bacteria, which we need because the bacteria are the beginning of the food web. And we have other... Um, microbes that are going to eat them from nematodes to protozoas are eating that bacteria and they're they're the beginning of the food web that, that we've got to have the bacteria to feed them or we don't have anything right <laughs> so so you got to think of we need lots of them we not we need lots of numbers of all of them and but to end up somewhere's in that ratio of one to one will be the ideal soil because those microbes are in balance with what plants growing above the soil. So we're shooting to be in the zone of that one-to-one -one that will grow vegetables and grasses. So all of our main crops, other than our pulse crops, are in the grasses, but there are, our pulse crops would fall in that too. So if we're farming and growing food, we'd like to stay close to that one-to-one -one ratio. And, and with that, how, what are some of the challenges that have arisen with our biodynamics in that ratio um, in terms of consistent farming and what you're specifically about is the no-till uh, with people who consistently till their, their right, fields? Right, right. Um, most soils are lacking fungi, all, all the soils that I've looked at and most of the people that are trained in the field uh, I'll talk about that we're severely lacking a fungi in our agricultural soils. Now here in the mountains, we're, we're in western Montana, they have a lot more fungal because it's a it's a woodland, right? And so the woodlands are formed with the fungi. So as that the ratio is going to get really high to the fungal when we're in a tree environment. But where we're really doing production agriculture is prairie now, you know. Mm -hmm. But some of it used to be woodland, but that was you know 200 years ago now, and so that fungi has disappeared and gone. And so we're really lacking fungi in those soils. But we also are lacking 
um, numbers of everybody in the soils. And so we really almost need to feed the bacteria to get the food web enough food to eat to keep, to be able to even start shifting it so that we can sh hopefully shift away from growing weeds and start growing yeah. food. <laughs> you have to go back to ground zero then, it right. sounds like. Um, so in terms of uh, an overly fungal network, so it, it's fragile, fungal yes. fungi is. Um, and we're looking at the mycelium, we're not necessarily looking at, people think fungus, they think, oh, I can go pick some morale mushrooms. Yeah, the, that's a, what we see above the ground is just a fruiting body of a different fungi. And there's, there's thousands of them. Right. Yeah. And the mycophysorhizae, your hyphae and stuff that we talk about, they're a whole different class of fungi. So there's lots of lots and lots of fungi. Yeah. And that's exciting. That's in a fun world for me to be in. Right. I love mushrooms personally. Yes. Um, I want to keep them right. around. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, the biggest shift. So previously we talked about your history as um, growing up in the the, the cattle industry. Mm -hmm. And where was the shift? Because you were a rancher at one point when you were right. out in Montana. Are you primarily a vegetable grower in your spare time now? Do you still work with cattle? or is it... um, My cows, I still own a few cows. And they're out on shares with a rancher. And it, uh, I helped that rancher um, teach his kids how to feed cattle and halter break them and, and raise them into fat animals and stuff. So, And he'd buy my bulls, and I, I helped him. Um, him and his kids both learn about the beef industry and how to select really good animals and how to take how to take really good care of them. And so we had a good relationship. And I just have him do my cows on shares. So I own them, but I actually not doing a lot with them because my heart and passion's been into the the vegetables and growing um, healthy food and healthy soils because I think it's going to be the fastest way because this change is going to come from the consumer. It's obviously not going to come from the government in this country whatsoever. So, and it's not going to come from upper business or whatever. It is. It is going to come from the consumer. And so, the fastest way, in my mind, to make these major changes that we need to do with our food system is is going to be through the vegetables. And so, that's where I've concentrated most of my efforts for the last um, seven, eight, ten years, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so what would you say someone could do um, in terms of their own kind of advocacy to be able to make that change? You know, they, we always hear, you know, if we don't do something within the next 50 years, we're all going to die. We want to, we want to change that. We want to, you know, I was always someone who felt like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Why can't, why, why bother? But at this time I'm like, yeah, this is, this is incredible. We need to, we have the options to do things. Yeah. What are some things the backyard gardener can do? Uh, people who barely know how to identify their vegetables when they go to the grocery store. Let's talk about, about right. the effort. So there's lots of different, I, I, I look at it like the bell curve. You know, I, I sometimes I have classes of three kids and I still have the bell curve and I'm like, how could that be <laughs> that we still end up the far extremes and the average, you know? And, and so we got these different groups of people. So if we talk about just the gardener and somebody that has some knowledge about gardens and when want to grow, those people just need to get education like they had today at Free the Seeds, where it's a free education and help them move toward a no-till system and get into a regenerative agriculture and fully understand the four main concepts of it so that they can be successful in improving their soils, which those soils and the soil microbes that are making that soil alive 
is going to be feeding that food all of those minerals and nutrients that we currently are missing in our foods today. And so they're going to be able to make the fix at the garden level very fast, three years. And we're going to change from food that tastes like cardboard to food that's like, wow, I've never tasted anything like that in my life before. Because that's where you're going to find the nutrients is through our taste buds. I think the majority of most of the people in the United States have no idea what really good food tastes like anymore because we've gotten so disconnected from it. Um, is how we've bred the food to be able to be shipped and stored and handled and, and really to satisfy the customer because the customer wants something pretty, right? And the, the grocer's got to have shelf life to be able to market it. So money in, in the market and the consumer has driven this food production to go in the direction it went. And it was interesting, I was listening to a podcast one day and the guy asked the person, it was, a, it was a plant breeder, and he was breeding vegetable seeds for these big um, seed producers. And he said that, um, he said, they've never asked me to breed for flavor. They've only asked me to breed for the perfect round tomato or the tomato that could withstand the harvesting machine or the tomato that could go into storage and harvest it green and then gas it and turn it into the tomato that we see at the grocery store. Or they they haven't asked miles. me yeah. to make it nutritious. They didn't ask me for the flavor. So we've been breeding it for the, the food system. Of what we have currently, and it, and the consumers to blame too because you go to the grocery store. Are you willing to buy the last one on the shelf? Mm. So most people don't. They're like, no, they'll let the grocer go take take that away and bring back new before they're going to buy because they're they're buying with their eyes. They're not buying with their brains or their taste buds. Well, you're not allowed to bite into your tomato, yeah. right? I think, <laughs> I think we need to change that. I think they do need to be able to, to taste it in the grocery store before they buy it. And we would quickly be moving toward way healthier food if they would let us do that. But they are developing a machine that can do it and be able to test that food. And I'm hoping to be able to test one of those this year and be able to check and see what the um, bionutrients are in that food and so that we will be able to document what type of soil it was grown in, what sort of microbes is in that soil, and if it's transmitting into the food and stuff. So just for those people who are listening to this who might be able to geek out as much as we mm -hmm. are right now, what what tool are you using there? Um it's it's being developed by the bionutrient people and I don't know the name of it. And there's only like 25 of them that they've got their um, their their protocols are not completely finished yet, but they want to get them out into um, people's hands that will be actually knowing exactly what kind of soil we're growing in, and be able to test that food and and to be have some differences to be able to test and see, you know, is does the food have nutrition in it or not? That's and cool. So, yeah. So that if they can get that developed and we can get it tested, then it's going to really change quickly, you know, if the nutrition is in the food and what it's going to take to correct the soils to get it back in the food. And that's different from a, a refractometer that measures the BRICS yes. rating. Right. Okay. Yes. The refractometer, we're just measuring sugars and we're bending light rays over it and it can tell us how high those sugars are. 
from photosynthesis in the plant, okay. which is a good indicator and it helps us for several things, but it's not gonna tell us if it's got the zinc, boron, vitamin A, D, B, and stuff, the things that we need as humans in that product or not. Yeah, and that's something that I think is really interesting is being able to identify those nutrients. And what's funny to me is some ridiculous statistic, like 90, I'm, I'm going off the, off the cuff here, but 95% of Americans or something like that are, are magnesium deficient, which is something that you can get from a leaf. It's what makes plants green. Right. And that's, that's interesting to me, the connection between our diets and, and what the consumer is dictating. Uh, does that mean our leafy greens on the shelf aren't, aren't full of uh, magnesium? Well, I think our leafy greens stand a better chance of it. Uh, I don't think our production agricultural products do. As I think there's a severe mineral tie-up with the chemical egg that's that's taken away from the food in the first place. And so if it's not in the plant and the animal eats the plant, doesn't matter if it's an animal that we're going to consume or if it's a human eating the plant, they're not there. Right? And we, the we're chain not getting exist. them. Yeah. Right? So the, the soil food web, these microbes are what's going out and, and getting in, into the soils, out of deep soils and deep-rooted plants. And they're making exchanges with the plant for um, sugars and carbohydrates from the red exudates leaking into the soils. And so there's a big trading system going on underneath there, and those microbes are bringing those, those um, micronutrients and, and different minerals to the plant to be able to use, to have it in itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the plants we look at today, we don't know what... A really healthy plant of those plants look like today. We're not getting near the photosynthesis done with the plants today as we did in the 70s. And so I think where we can go from here is is endless. That we haven't even begun to touch how to grow really healthy food. Yeah, uh, since we're on this kind of uh, how the system works rabbit hole, do you think the uh, commercial farms and, and big ag are able to change their ways to be able to sustain themselves, if I could speak. Um, or do you think it's going to rely on the backyard and market gardeners and small small farmers? Because there's this debate out there about who's really going to be the future farmer. Well, I think they both will be. And we need them all. Because everywhere we look in agriculture, we do not have enough youth coming into agriculture. It doesn't matter if it's a if it's a backyard gardener, or if it's a vegetable producer, or if it's a big egg producer. We don't have enough of them, just flat period, that we need everybody in egg. I think agriculture needs to be taught in every single school in the nation, and that it should be. It should be mandatory. And some countries have already made it mandatory. Some countries have made agriculture so mandatory that the oldest son or even two sons in a household cannot leave the farm for education, that they have to stay on the farm to get the knowledge from the older generation past the next generation, that they've made it that important. This country, we've done nothing, nothing we have to be able to, <laughs> to, to get the, the consumer educated about agriculture, the consumer knowledgeable about agriculture, and to groom new farmers. And so we're going to need them all. But as far as, um, we're, they're two different groups, right? So your big egg producers, there's some of big egg producers 
and I don't know what the percentage would be, but um, they're moving quickly toward regenerative agriculture. And they have big following with them grouping together and helping each other learn. And there's a lot of movement going on and it's, it's really starting to take off with regenerative ag and soil health movement. And those people are gonna be the leaders and the people around them are gonna be the leaders and the other people are gonna be the followers, right? So it's, it's back to, you know, the, the early adopters you know, the early adopter, and then the, the majority will follow. Ah. And so once we get to the tipping point, which I don't think we're very far from the tipping point, we are from the consumer standpoint. I think at the consumer standpoint, we're already over the tipping point as the consumer wanting a healthy food product in a organic type raised product. We're already past the tipping point, I think, from the consumer side. But from the producer side, we're getting there. And so once we get there, then the majority is going to follow because it's going to tip. No different than the hybrid corn seed when when it come into the country. It, within five years, every farmer was growing and planting hybrid seeds because they could see over the fence and see, wow, my neighbor's, <laughs> my neighbor's corn is twice as good as mine, yielding way better than mine. What do you plant? And they start planting it. And so what we need is more examples and like um, educational farms and test plots and things where a farmer on a highway puts a test plot sign up and says, this is a regenerative agricultural site. Stop by and see what's going on to help educate other people and other farmers and to give them confidence. Oh, that does work in my soil. Right there it is. And once they can see it, it will work in their soil and they're being successful. The whole thing's going to tip relatively quickly. That's yeah. So that's there's exciting. a lot of hope out there. That's an exciting point. Um, I driving down the big rural uh, cornfields where I grew up, you see the the plots with the stake of you know, yes. this is the kind of corn I've got, and right. here's my code on it. <laughs> the hybrid seed companies. Yeah. Right. Um, do you think that there's going to try to be that um, competition, or is this going to be something like, hey, this is something we're all trying to change together. Let's do it. Let's support each other, and there's room for for each of us farming the same thing if you know we're not trying to crowd each other out that's right oh there's definitely the the community with the regenerative agricultural people and helping each other and and um a lot of guys will will tell them everything that they can possibly tell them to help them get started in regenerative agriculture and yeah it's going to be and you're on the forefront of it well, I hope. You know, I'm trying to... <laughs> You're not trying to sell I, I got some stuff. pretty good friends on Facebook that are the leaders, that's for sure. Yeah. But, you know, compared to the, the everyday kind of gardener, I think you, you're blowing people out of the water when you come to your workshops. Oh, thank you. But uh, um, that's, that's something really exciting. I just want to... I briefly had in my notes here, I wanted to discuss um, permaculture. Yeah. Um, and on a few notes, it, it sounds like we're going almost beyond permaculture at this point. Uh, permaculture in my eyes was something that's more than sustainable it's organic but it's also um, it's just different methods on how you do things what does permaculture mean to you well permaculture I think fits right into the regenerative agriculture I mean somebody that's already doing permaculture is probably doing at least three of the four practices of regenerative agriculture so the practices are the principles are to keep the ground covered and stop or reduce disturbances. So the tilling, the chemicals, the 
the um, phosphate fertilizers, those are all uh, disturbances. Wind erosion, soil erosion, keeping soil exposed, those are all disturbances because we gotta stop and reduce those completely as much as possible. And then um, keeping the ground covered with a, like a leaf litter or a mulch or a living plant, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you can, you pretend you're the sun and you're looking down, you should always see leaves whether it's dead leaves or growing leaves, but you should always see plant litter on the soil surface. In nature, nature never has the soil exposed. If she does, she's going to cover it very, very quickly with annual weeds, and that's what their job is, to get that first leaf litter laid down and to start building food for the soil food web. And so keeping that soil covered is, is major. And then plant diversity the more plant diversity you can plant. And we like to mimic nature. So nature out in a prairie would have close to 140 plants or more in the community. And so in our gardens, we're probably way more diverse than, than big ag for sure, because big ag has been traditionally for the last 30 years or more uh, monocrop planting. So monocrop corn, soybean, wheat, cotton, alfalfa, everything's been monocrop. Right, and that is breaking the rules of nature that we need to stop doing that. And they're starting to. They're starting to do intercropping. They're putting in polycrops where they're planting multiple crops in one season. And so when you talk about permaculture, permaculture is already doing a lot of that stuff. And so I think it's just a perception of differences that we need to all come together and we're all should be moving in that same direction. Yeah. And, and this is good for everybody, whether you're <clears throat> yes, exactly. big ag, you know, mm -hmm. you're vegetable or horticulture. Right. Um, I always kind of had my nose up in the air when I started learning about flowers and I was like, oh, I'm a horticulturist. I know all the flowers. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm quickly realizing the more I know, the less I know. <laughs> um, so I'm excited that big ag is, is changing <clears throat> in, in doing that. What are some, some crops? There are a lot of great companion crops out there, mm -hmm. especially for... Big ag. Um, corn grows readily in the Midwest. Everybody knows that. Uh, one thing I've discovered recently was the three sisters method. Right. Um, and for those who don't know that, that's the planting of corn, squash, and beans together. Uh, it's a Native American uh, tradition or farming method where mm -hmm. it covers the ground completely and that's mimicking nature in the best way possible. Do you see methods like that with big ag or is that something that's... Um, we have a lot of complex machinery. Is that going right. to be something that's they're, they're getting it figured out. They're definitely getting it figured out. And uh, Dr. Joe Clapperton is phenomenal at getting it figured out for big egg. And um, so, like, you could grow wheat and lentils together in the same field, for example. And you could grow flax and peas together in the same field and, and harvest them. And you're going to screen them apart when you after you've harvested it, right? That's one step. So you're going to harvest easy. it yeah. with one combine and put it into one one truck and then you're going to take that truck and auger it into a seed cleaning cleaner and clean it into two trucks and then then bend them or sell them separately right so there's a lot of lot, lot of double crops like that where there's two and one and then they're starting to do um uh inner crops where they're intercropping like a cover crop in the middle of corn and making <laughs> corn rows a lot wider and the wider the row, then the more photosynthesis those corn plants can do. And so then they, they'll put in cover crop right in, inside the corn. There's other guys that are planting clover as a 
plant the whole field to clover. And then they no-till the corn into it, or the soybeans into it, so that they have got that clover in there fixing nitrogen for that corn plant. Oh, I didn't know these people you were could, out there. You could do soybeans and corn together and let the soybean fix the nitrogen for the corn. And anytime you start doing uh, multiple species together, especially if you get up toward eight, eight plants living together, then you get synergy. And those plants explode and they do way better together than they do apart and so yeah there's some guys in north dakota that have proved that extensively so jay fewer is um has got great documentation of that taking place that those plants are going to do better they're going to withstand drought they're going to be resilient by having plants growing together instead of having a single crop and that's because of their root network and yeah, their the root connection. network and their soil food web working together. Awesome. And they're building new soil aggregates and making a whole community down there that's that's just getting it on. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm I'm getting jazzed about this. I'll be <laughs> honest. I'm super excited. Um, we're we're starting to wrap up here, so I'd like to try to um, talk to you about your your hopes your dreams and where you see the future going, as well as your fears. Uh, what are some things that you could see going wrong with all this? Um, well, it's already gone wrong in human health completely. Um, the human health problems are tied to what's went wrong in agriculture in our soils. And people like Dr. Um, Zach Bush has got it figured out and is definitely an advocate to get things moving in the right direction. But... Um, we cannot financially withstand what's going on with human health. And so it's got to get food fixed through the food. And the food will be our medicine. And so <laughs> um, money is a big problem, right? Because there's a lot of money in healthcare, and there's a lot of money in big ag, and there's a lot of money in chemicals, chemical ag, and a lot of money in pharmaceuticals. And so I think it comes right down to the consumer deciding, do I want that or not? And they need to start voting, no, they don't want that. That they want a clean, healthy food product to eat for all of us to become healthier. Because we're going to have to come healthier together as, as a planet of human species on the planet. And that's that's your dream? That's the, <clears throat> that's the grand vision? That is, the, yeah, we're going to have to. Yeah. I think it's a have-to situation that... Um, we can't continue down the sickly path that we're on and be healthy as as a species on the planet, because we're 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 degenerating mm -hmm. as as we go, especially as we're having kids. If we're in poor health and we're having kids, then they're receiving poor genes, and it is not a good path. Yeah, that we need to definitely, and it can easily be done. We just got to make the decision. We're going to do this, and. You need, each and every person needs to start recognizing that I need to take care of my body and feed my own microbes and my own gut and start eating the right types of foods that have been grown in the right type of soil. And then they are going to become healthy. And you can become healthy relatively quickly by doing the right things with the right foods grown in the right soils. Yeah, this sounds like something that um, is the driving factor of your passion and some, something's touched you in your life there that, in that regard. Yes, um, uh, I'm not going to touch it, but um, I'm, I'm love hearing the, the, the true passion in your voice there. Um, I've equally, I've seen people in my life who I love and care about um, have 
health issues like that. And, and collectively, we want everyone to be healthy. We want the ones we love around. So right, this is good and for all it, of us. Exactly, and even um, you know, and it can be the bad of the bad. You know, where I've lost two family members to cancer, but it's the majority of the people that look somewhat healthy. Although if we look at Americans now today and look at them in the 1970s, like, <laughs> we're so far from healthy, we just look crap compared to what we used to look like as a, as a whole, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm used to judging livestock and being high, highly close to details and judging things as, as a mass or as individuals. We are not healthy. And you can be a young person think, I am healthy and I'm doing the right thing. But if you're still eat, drinking pop with high fructose corn syrup in it and you're eating a lot of um, commercial grains that have got a lot of glyphosate or Roundup on them, you're not going to be healthy for long. That everybody should get some better education. That's why if we could get this education into the school system with agriculture and teaching kids how to grow food in school and teaching them to eat it. I think the farm to school is going to try to push for a bill through right now in the legislature, so you pay attention town. to that. They're trying, so hopefully we have a number pretty soon and can pass the message on that, but we need to get that into the school, and the farm to school is the closest thing that we've got to be able to make that move to get, them, get something going into the school systems. Yeah, that'll be exciting to see. I'll mm -hmm. have to pay attention a little more to the legislature. Mm -hmm. Having just moved here, this is still important to me. This is right. my home now. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're nearly out of time. Uh, I'm going to give you this last few minutes here to go ahead and plug anything that you want. Um, you've got your website. Go ahead and say what that is. And I'll... Yeah, I mostly am on Facebook right now okay. um, through the Agrarian Food Web or my name, Patty Armbruster. And I'm using those as a main focus, I need to get better help where we get a really good interactive um, web page going. But it's a work in progress. I've about three or four years before I retire from teaching school. And so once I retire, then I hope that this uh, consulting business is up and running well. And, and it can be hopefully educating people maybe all over the world. You never know. Yeah, you're never going to retire. You're going to yeah. keep doing this. No, yeah, no, it's it's definitely retiring to my passion. Cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I've had to do for a few decades here, but um, I definitely will be doing what I want to be doing. So That's exciting. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to post that uh, link on my uh, on my podcast here cool. for you. I'll, I'll have that as well as earlier you had mentioned uh, Free the Seed in the event mm -hmm. we did today. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be so much fun, but for those who don't know, uh, out here in Montana, we do... Uh, well, Robin, I forget her last name. Kelson. Robin Kelson. Yep, from Good Seed Company. Yep, she she does the the whole event, and awesome people uh, like Patty here come out to to be presenters and and really educate the community. So we appreciate it. Um, and are there any any books that you like? To, you'd mentioned some a few doctors yeah, got, here, and I've got several books that people should read. Um, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown is um, I think every every single person should be reading that book it will help every farmer whether if you're a market gardener or you're even a home gardener or to the biggest ag person in the world that book is going to help them and um pharmacology is a really good book and she's an old one yeah she touches on some really good stuff though and um oh i got a whole list of books that are priceless 
the um, soil owner's manual. If you've already got some really good, if you've read like Gabe Brown's book or the pharmacology, then that one would be a good one to go to. Uh, let's see, uh, Dr. David Montgomery's books, um, The Dirt and The Growing Revolution. It's a fantastic book, and I think he is actually working on a new book again. Awesome. So, you said it was Dirt and... And yeah, dirt stuff. was dirt. The erosion of civilization was his first real one that really dug into the soils around the earth and finding out that they're all all going toward desertification and we need to get our act together. And then the growing revolution, he went out and found um, actual people doing regenerative agriculture all over the world and gave really good case studies for other people to follow and understand we can do this and all we have to do is decide to do this and it's going to happen. Awesome. Are you writing a book of your own anytime soon? Can we expect Well, my to mother see something? kept telling me that my whole life, but it hits <laughs> in the back of the brain somewhere, you know. But no, I'm not working on a book. But I like. But other resources someday. on the web, though, there's tons of them on the web that don't have books necessarily right out now. But the um, Nicole Masters with the Soil Integrity, and um, she's got some great stuff. And Dr. Zach Bush, if you haven't heard. Zach Bush talk. It's a wonderful it's, speaker, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely need to be doing that. And if they're really into agriculture, then John Kemp and his podcast and webinars and stuff is is a great, great education. If you're already going in the right direction, he's he'll elevate you to no end. I'm excited to try him out. Yeah. Well, awesome. I think uh, I think we've given our listeners something to think about today. Cool. Uh, Again, thank you for coming on. Yeah, I really wonderful, appreciate it. and it's great to get to know you and, and uh, spend time here with uh, with the Spirit Works, and can hardly wait for the growing season to start. I'm very excited, and you're coming back to, to do a wrap up presentation about your no till. Yeah, maybe it's the it's the second, right? Yeah, the follow up. Uh, we hope there's going to be lots and lots of them. Exactly. Well, join us next time here on Spirit Works uh, for Patty's uh, no till event. Probably another one next year around the same time as uh, the free to seed event so all right thank you for listening we'll see you soon